Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Episode 49 of the Drive Nation podcast looks like being a busy one. We've got plenty to rattle through. Um, first of all, though, Andrew, I've mentioned the Drive Nation podcast. As of, well, now, it's no longer the Drive Nation podcast. We've got a new name. We are now the Intercooler. Um, Welcome, everybody, to the Intercooler. Yeah, so this is something which we have known about for a very long time, um, and the reason that we haven't changed the name until now is we have been going through an unbelievably long and boring and tedious process, an expensive one too, um, called trademarking. Um, but that is done now and the name is safe. It is ours. Nobody else can have it. So um, it wasn't something that we could do with Drive Nation um, for reasons I won't bore you with, but um, we can with the Intercooler. So we hope you like the new name. Um, we think it's quite cool, don't we, Dan? Yeah, we do think it's quite cool. To me, the intercooler, it's, it sounds a bit like a pub. Maybe it will be a pub one day. Um, it, it's, I also, it, it'll be good. Any pub it? sounds also, great at the moment. Yeah, well, not too long now. Um, and I also think it, it calls to mind the water cooler, which is some, a place where people gather around and share stories and talk. So, yeah, I think that's good. Um, it's also distinctive. No one else has used it before, which is why we've been able to protect it. Um, but... I think almost more appealing than more appealing than the rest of that is that it abbreviates to TI, uh, and if you're a sort of a hopeless level car enthusiast like we are, TI is just a really cool car model suffix, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. It's so cool. It speaks of Alphas and BMWs, and uh, I want to do a thing called the Intercooler Interview because then that could be TII which anybody who knows their 2002 BMWs will, will remember with great fondness. Um, I, I also like the fact that it's actually it's a real word, isn't it? You know, if you look at all the sort of new automotive media that's come along in the last few years um, and having struggled to find a name, a real name that we can uh, trademark, I completely understand why uh, these sort of hybrid names the sort of things i'm thinking about things like sort of you know petrolicious and carfection and car wow and you know even piston head i understand why these things have people have had to make up names uh, i just i just really like the fact that we've actually got a real name um which is a real part of a car for now at least um and yeah so and this is um and we can't say too much yet about this um, but this is just the start of, I mean, Dan and I have banged on for a while about our big plans for 2021, but we really do have them and they really are <laughs> happening now. Um, uh, we've even whisper it got uh, a little bit of money behind us now. Um, so we're in a position to, to take things forward and to do, uh, what we hope and think and believe will be fun and interesting things. It'll, uh, being blunt, it'll now, it will enable us, we hope, to earn some money, um, which is important because although Drive Nation has been a wonderful thing to do for the world, well, Dan and I have been on it for three years, it's only been public for two and a half, um, it couldn't last forever like that because um, 
you know, we, we couldn't earn anything out of it. Um, and so what we really, really hope is that people, the 40 plus thousand people who have followed us on Drive Nation, I really, really hope that as many of them as possible will come over um, to the intercooler, continue to follow us on Instagram and the intercooler and anything else that we might be doing with it. Um, and yeah, and, and just join us if you like what we do. Um, we're just going to do a lot more of it. Yeah, we are. Um, the name change is really just the start of all this. Um, and over the next few weeks, you're going to hear loads more about it, I promise you. Um, and I suspect that if you could hear, if you were party to, a party to some of the conversations we've been having with certain people about certain things, I think you'd be really excited. We certainly are. Um, so stay tuned. We'll be telling you much more about it very soon. Um, it's important to say that we're going to carry on doing the podcast. We're going to carry on filming the podcast, hopefully in person soon. We're going to carry on publishing stuff on Instagram. Um, so that's not going to change. And before we move on to really start this podcast, it's really important to say that none of this, taking Drive Nation to the next level, changing its name, turning it into a proper business with a product which is on its way, none of this would be possible without all of you listening, everyone who's watched the podcast on youtube everyone who's downloaded the podcast everyone's who everyone who's followed us on instagram um you know interacted with us commented on stuff and perhaps more than anyone our patrons everyone who's supported us on patreon without the money that you guys have pledged honestly none of this would be happening so thank you indeed thank you thank you um okay well there we go let's start this podcast andrew i've not told you what the first topic we're going to discuss is I hate uh, it when you do this. <laughs> well, I thought no, I knew it, what we were going to be talking about. Yeah, well, you do mostly. But th- this topic, I, I just want to rattle through it, because, and it's entirely self-serving. It's just because something cool happened to me this week, and I want to talk about it a bit. Did you see my tweet or my Instagram post about my, my car yes, recently? I did. I did. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Okay. Uh, you lucky boy. Let me explain. I was on a, a video shoot in Oxfordshire earlier this week, um, as we're recording this on Monday, uh, and we were in a car park, and I'd just toddled off somewhere. And when I came back, there was a a, a kindly older chap uh, standing next to my car, my Alpine, talking to some of the guys that I work with. And he introduced himself as Frank Durney, who, if you love Formula One, you followed it for a long time, you'll know that he's he was one of the great Formula One car designers. In the very early 80s, his cars won multiple championships, so his Williams cars. Uh, So just an extraordinary thing to get to meet this guy. And the reason he came over was that he saw my A110, and the first thing he said was, Gordon Murray keeps telling me these are brilliant. (laughs) I was just, I was over the moon about that. It was great. He said that as far as he's concerned, it's the only proper sports car in production today. Um, and we had a we had a little natter for ten minutes. We were really up against it on that video shoot, so I didn't have a moment to spare. But I had to spend ten minutes just chatting to this bloke because he was. As anyone who's met Frank Durney knows, he's so talkative. He loves having a natter. Uh, he swore a lot, which is a sign of a, a good, you know a good fun character, I think. Um, and we were just chatting about cars, and he was saying that he he specked up a Porsche Taycan. But he decided against it because he, he just thinks current EVs are crap because they're all so heavy. <laughs> and it that's, was, a, that's a proper Formula One engineer talking, isn't it? it? It really is. Yeah. And he said that in Formula One terms, a 10 kilogram weight penalty is worth 0.35 seconds a lap. So, you know, that's why they keep weight out as much as they can. And he's saying, so how do you make sense of all these EVs that weigh more than two tonnes? It was, ah, it was just a very cool encounter, completely did, unexpected. Did he, did he have any view? Did he talk about modern Formula One at all? No, he didn't. I said, do you, do you keep up to date with it very much? And he said, not, not really, partly because he's been out of it for at least 10 years, I think, now. Um, mm-hmm. And he said that just so quickly, the turnover rate it, you know, is such that you fall out of touch with the people who, who are involved. And he said that the top designers now, more than anything, it's a management role. You're managing teams of people. Whereas in his day, he would have designed, you know, almost the entire car along with one or two others. Yeah. Um, whereas it's a totally different proposition now. But then it would have been Patrick Head, I guess. He would have yeah. been... Yeah. yeah, so him and Patrick would have just done the car, um, presumably, mm. Um, mm. and gone to the World Championship with it. Fantastic. Extraordinary, isn't it? 
And well, here's this you. kindly old bloke wandering around a car park in Oxfordshire with Formula One titles to oh. his credit. I mean, it's fantastic, isn't it? You're very lucky, given how little we're out and about at the moment, to have had yeah. someone like that just sort of blunder across your path. Um, very yeah. jealous. It's cool, isn't it? <laughs> okay, I just had to share that story because it was great. And I'll, I'll sort of remember it very fondly for a long time. But let's get stuck into it. Um, yeah. Now, we're recording this the day after Ferrari announced, well, something that we've been waiting for for a very long time, decades. They're coming back to Le Mans, but the top table at Le Mans. They've been racing in the GT class for a long time, yeah. but they're building a Le Mans hypercar, the, the, the top category that there is. They're going for an outright win at Le Mans again from 2023. How great is that? It's just the best. I mean, there are people at Ferrari who must, I mean, over the... I have been asking them that question for well over 30 years and they must be so sick of it. I, I, I wonder whether they're not doing it just to shut, to, to, to shut us up, all the people <laughs> who have just been going, come on, come on, come on, come on. Um, you know, I, I, okay, I'm not old enough to remember when Ferrari were racing at Le Mans, although I was, you know, their last, their last race at Le Mans. I mean, I think one of the reasons for 2023 is it's 50 years after its last works entry to Le Mans in 1973 and okay i was around then um but i wasn't going to Le Mans then because i was a kid um but you know ferrari at Le Mans is to me i mean i i maybe people of your generation think that Le Mans is is obviously porsche and it's audi and it's toyota and it's peugeot and, it, and it's things like that but i don't think necessarily um your generation associate Le Mans with ferrari in quite the same way no. As mine do. I mean, to me, Ferrari is, I mean, all Formula One issues aside, uh, Ferrari is one of the great um, Le Mans marks. And, 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 and the battles between Ford and Ferrari in the 1960s and then Porsche and Ferrari in the early 1970s are, I mean, they are, to me, the greatest moments in my sport. Um, there's, 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 no, there's no season of Formula One, um, which to me gets anywhere close to those seasons. I mean, if you've seen the Steve McQueen film, Le Mans, you'll know what I'm talking about, you know, 917s and 512Ss um, and that sort of thing at Le Mans. And the, the gladiatorial spirit um, and those beautiful cars and the unbelievable, the superstars who drove them and the way that they had to work together um, and the dangers that they faced. Um, I mean, the extraordinary thing uh, is that in 2023... The Ferrari hypercar, the new LMH car, isn't going to go down the Mulsanne Strait any faster than a 512S went down it in 1970. Um, you know, 512S would probably have done, I don't know, with a long tail on it, 220 miles an hour down there. Actually, the LMH car probably won't do that because of the chicanes. But the big difference is, is that, you know, the, the LMH car will be a solid vault of carbon fibre, whereas the 512S was made out of crisp packets. Um, and there is something about um, that era and those cars, which is just magical to me. And to me, Ferrari and Le Mans are as indivisible as Porsche and Le Mans. And I, I just can't wait um, to see them back there. It's, it, it, is, it is just the best news. Why, why do you think they're doing it in the first instance? Is, is there an argument for um, it being because they're not having much fun in F1 at the moment? Or is that entirely separate? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, you know, if they'd say more about the program, um, it would be it would be easier to say. I don't think it's going to be F one because we know why they're not having much fun in F one. It's because um, you know the FIA clipped their wings um, for reasons unknown, um, but about which there has been plenty of speculation, and they had an absolute rubbish season. I think they'll have a less rubbish season this year, but it, I don't see them fighting it out with Red Bull and, and Mercedes-Benz. But there is the big rule change that is coming um, you know, next year. And Ferrari would hope that that would get them back to the top in Formula 1. So I don't think they're going to run away from that. I suspect it's got more to do with what they're doing on the road car side. Um, and the fact that they're, everything that they're going to sell is going to be a hybrid. Um, and you know, the thing about the hypercar category, and I'm sure we'll talk about the differences between them, because there are now two top categories at Le Mans. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get on to the differences between them. Um, but the thing about the hypercar category is, you know, you can enter 
a variation of a road car into it or you can create a racing car which looks like your road car um, so that there is going to be a clear link between what they do on the road and what they do on the track i think the other critical thing about the category uh, is cost um, you know somebody said told me that porsche's most recent lemore program which lasted whatever it did three or four years um, cost them 200 million pounds uh, i don't know whether that's true or not but it will be of that order um, well you know even a lemore hypercar which is going to be a lot more expensive than the other category the lmdh category which we'll come on to in a minute uh, is going to cost a tiny 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 fraction of that um, so um, maybe it's just something that they feel that they can do i mean ferrari have not run you know top level programs in sports cars and formula one since that 1973 season um, and one of the reasons that they stopped doing it was it was just too time consuming and expensive to maintain that level of competitiveness um you know and ferrari you know in the early 1970s uh, were struggling in formula one um and the perception was the part of the reason was that the scuderia was split and it was spent half of it was doing the sports cars and half of it was doing the formula one cars um the other thing is is maybe they think they can make money out of it you know they have to sell cars uh, be they road legal versions of the racing cars or be they customer cars to go racing. Uh, I haven't actually seen them saying it's going to be a full, I think the inference is it's going to be a full works team, um, but maybe they'll do like they did with the 512s back in the early center and they'll just sell customer cars. Um, you know, how many teams do you think, you know, given that the costs are reasonably controlled, they wouldn't queue up to buy, a, you know, to race a effectively a prototype Ferrari at Le Mans? I mean, it's the ultimate dream ticket, isn't it? Particularly if you are a, a wealthy gentleman driver with a couple of hot shoe teammates, um, you know, they're, they're, they're going to queue, aren't they? So I suspect that's got, I, I suspect they found a way of making the numbers add up, which is why they're doing it. Yeah, okay. Now you've mentioned that there are now two categories at the top table of Le Mans, LMH and LMDH. Oh God, couldn't they come up with more distinctive names for them? It's just, there's one letter difference. And it's so just, soulless, isn't it? Yeah, it's so so. I mean, I, I know that, you know, LMP1 and LMP2 aren't exactly, you know, but exactly. I mean, yeah, there are two. OK, I mean, there is there has been some equivalency recently made between the two top levels. But you're absolutely right. They're just um, particularly as the H's mean different things in both, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. Hypercar in LMH and hybrid in LMDH. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like it needs to be a bit more joined up somehow. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you the headlines on uh, the headline bullet points on what's different about them. Le Mans yeah. hypercar, you can build the ent- entire car yourself. Um, you've got control over everything. It's much more expensive to do that. LMDH, D for Daytona, yeah. um, it's much more of a spec car. It's much cheaper to build that way. So you, you've got far less control over the technical aspects of the car, but it's much cheaper. Um, the fundamentally important point, though, is that they'll be BOP'd, balance of performance, um, so that they have equal pace. So whether you're running an LMH yeah. or an LMDH, you've got an equal shot at winning the overall race, which yeah. is really important. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and in addition to that, regardless of which category you're in, you're both you're only allowed the same amount of power i think it's 671 horsepower now if you're running a hybrid system on the car which obviously the lmdhs do and you can on an lmh but you don't have to um that can produce up to another 200 and something horsepower but it can only it can only do it (laughs) when the ice engine is producing sufficiently low levels of horsepower so that the total is no more than 671 um so um yeah but 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 the point is is that whether you're in lmh or you're in lmdh the cars are the same length they're the same width they have the same wheelbase they have the same power and crucially they run to the same weight as well and i think i think they're even aero balanced i think they both run well i know that lmdh runs on a four to one downforce to drag ratio uh, and i think they both do um so on that basis you wouldn't have thought and we know that in reality things can be very different, but you wouldn't have thought that there'd be an awful lot of balance of performance required because the hard points in both categories are basically the same, um, which really does beg the question, why would you do an LMH? Um, and the answer is that you can just create the car that you want to create. And there are all sorts of great marketing reasons for that. If you run an LMDH uh, as Porsche and Audi are doing, you have a choice of, you could choose one of four chassis. 
um, which are made by Orica, Ligier, Multimatic and Dolara, I believe. Um, and you can go to, but, but they'll, they'll all effectively be the same sort of chassis. Now you can stick your own motor in it, um, fine, but it's, uh, that is pretty much the only, um, major component of the car, which is not, you know, off the peg. Um, so the costs are, I mean, that's what, you know, that's why Porsche are doing it. Um, but maintaining their presence in Formula E, um, because, you know, it could compared to their last, you know, Le Mans program, it's, it, it's got to cost buttons. Um, and you know, and Porsche being Porsche, they will have looked at it and they will have, they will have figured out, they would have thought they, they would think that they have found a way to steal a march on the others because that's just the way that they work. And they all just go away and look at the rules and they will find something. And it's, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we can get tied up in all the sort of technical differences. For instance, in LMDH, you've got a spec chassis hybrid system gearbox. Um, and the chassis is actually shared with the next generation LMP2 car. Again, just bringing costs down. Um, but the, the fundamentally important point, as I've said, is that the cars are going to be on equal footing in terms of pace. So we are now going to see Porsche versus Ferrari versus Toyota versus Peugeot um, versus uh, Acura, Audi, uh, Audi um, at, the, at Le Mans. They, they are going to be racing for the, the the overall win and let us not forget you know the privateers um who are going to be in there you know they, we, we've got by collars racing in there we've got glickenhaus in there um you, you know there you know and, and and there will be others who come into lmdh as well and and on paper at least we know that you know this isn't necessarily the way it'll work out but you know they have an equal shot at it so we could have some absolutely amazing racing um, does it bother you? Because at the moment, the um, the plan is that they'll lap in about three minutes 30, which is about 15 seconds slower um, than, who was it? It was Kobayashi, I think, in the Toyota. Um, was the, 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 the outright lap record. Does it bother you that the cars are going to be a bit slower? Uh, not at all, because I wish I could do the maths in my head quickly here, but I can't. So when you're spectating at the circuit... Let's say you, you can see what quarter of a mile of track. If you divide that 15 second um, speed differential across the full lap and then down to your the little section that you can see, it's going to be tenths of a second. So I suspect you'll never be able to recognise no, that exactly drop in right. pace from exactly the side right. of the circuit. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, fine. I, I don't mind that they're slightly slower. No. Um, what's great, I mean, what's been frustrating recently is the, lev- the depth of competition at the front of the field hasn't been there. So no. it's not been that compelling. But, you know, with six or seven, maybe even more, top teams really going for it at the front of the... I mean, when did that last happen at Le Mans? It's, it's just going to be extraordinary. Yeah. I had a, I had a, a conversation with um, some people from Aston Martin, their Formula 1 team this morning, all of which is embargoed, and I can't talk about it till March the 3rd. Um, but I think I could say this because it's got nothing to do with Formula One. Um, I did ask, um, you know, whether Aston Martin were regretting pulling out um, of the hypercar category and wasn't that the sort of place that Aston Martin really should be racing, particularly now that it's become rather more affordable. Um, and the response was never say never, with a bit of a uh-huh. glint. Um, yeah. You know, and... You know, suddenly when things are so much more affordable, anything becomes possible, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And, you know, and you and I and, and many others have, you know, have rude the state that sports car racing got into after the withdrawal of Audi and Porsche. And then we had those years when it was just Toyota and privateers and Toyota with their hybrid and enormous budgets and everything else. Um and now suddenly, and sports car racing does this, doesn't it? It is, and it, it is for some reason, I've never really been able to say, it's cyclical. Uh, it gets itself into these mm. terrible pickles. <laughs> and then suddenly somebody goes, oh, blind, better do something. Um, and then you get this resurgence. And then suddenly, usually what happens is that um, someone just gets a bit cuter with the rules than anybody else. Uh, and they find a way around and they find an advantage. Um, 
and then suddenly it all gets terribly expensive again and the bloke with the biggest wallet wins um but we're at the start of that process now and so i reckon that we have a few good years ahead of us and i guess my only sadness is that you know we've got to wait two years for this to happen um because uh obviously toyota will be there this year um with bicolis and with glickenhaus but Peugeot aren't in it until next year and then all the others come chiming in in 23 don't they so it's not really going to be you know you're not going to be able to see Porsche Toyota Audi Ferrari Peugeot you know all the big guys going hammer and tongs at each other um for another two and a bit years which to me is someone who's really excited about this now is a (laughs) hell of a long time to wait Um, Uh, it is it should be worth it though I mean hopefully the start of a a whole new era. I'll now, tell the, you what, you, you various... need to book your tickets now, aren't you? I mean, can you imagine how yeah. busy that's going to be? The, yeah. the year oh, Ferrari yeah. goes back to Le Mans with Porsche and Audi and Peugeot and everybody else there too. I mean, it's going to be absolute mm. pandemonium. The, um, the various governing bodies, and there are lots of them involved, the ACO, the FIA, IMSA, um, it's, I think they've been quite smart because to enter the LMDH category, you actually have to be a car manufacturer. Anyone could go along and enter LMH, with a hypercar, but you have to be a car manufacturer to enter LMDH, and that's the much more affordable category. So they've put, the governing bodies have put themselves in a position where they've got this set of technical regulations that lots of manufacturers are looking at and going, why wouldn't we do that? Um, there's a chance of winning outright at the Le Mans, chance of winning the World Endurance Championship, and it's not going to cost a frightening sum of money. Um, now, there's an important point. A few people will be wondering which road-going hypercar Ferrari's machine will be based upon. And sadly, the rule has been tweaked a little bit, so they don't necessarily have to build one. Only if it is based on an existing road car do they then have to sell 20 of these hypercars to customers for the road. Um, But if it's just a standalone competition car, there doesn't have to be a road-going equivalent at all. Do they not then have to do 20 of the competition cars? No. That's my reading of it. I've done some research um, and that's how I understand it. These production minimums do not apply if the car is built either as a racing prototype or a not-for-sale concept. Okay, interesting. But they're going to want to, you know, given that they have, given that they are limited on the amount of downforce that they can produce, so that will give them scope to design bodywork, um, which is more than um, simply functional. Um, they're going to want to, to relate, relate it to their to their road car. So, I mean, so what do we think? Is it going to be whatever the next LaFerrari is? Is Could it going be. to be S, is it going to be SF ninety? Is it? I don't know. I don't know. It, it it would seem to make sense to build Ferrari's next sort of halo car, um, yeah. closely related to the competition car. Otherwise, why do it? Um, yeah. I must give a shout out to Daily Sports Car. Uh, is it dot com for that? Uh, yeah, dailysportscar.com. Um, that's where I've been reading up about all this stuff. It's pretty complicated, so thank you to everyone who's been explaining it to my small mind. Um, well, there we go. I mean, there's a huge amount to look forward to at Le Mans. We've got a couple of years to wait, haven't we? But all these manufacturers coming in, just imagine the drivers that are going to be there, the number of cars competing right at the front of the field for the outright win. 2023, we just need to be there, don't we? Uh, yeah, and, and if you've never been, anybody listening to this or watching this, uh, for whatever reason, but you've toyed with the idea, um, just go, just go. And, and my advice would be, just take lots of advice. Book early, get, get yourself in, you know, in, in the right campsite. Um, if you can, just spend a bit of money just um, making sure that you've got you know, a decent grandstand seat, that sort of thing. But much more important than that, don't just do what everybody else do, does and get pissed in the village and, and watch from you know, the Ford Chicane to the Dunlop Bridge. Um, get out and get around the circuit. Go out to Mulsanne in the middle of the night. Go and spec- go. I mean, I always spend dawn at the Porsche Curves because that's just my... I go out there on my own and it's just what I do. But, um, you know, dusk at Arnage or Indianapolis or Tete Rouge, which you can walk to easily from the pit area at dusk. I mean, that's when you see... You know, the cars don't seem... You know, on the pit straight, because there's the chicane at the beginning of it and because it just sort of curves off to the right at the end, you don't get that impression of speed. You've got to go out to the quick corners to see what these cars can do. Um, go with a load of mates, wobble down in some old car if you can, just make a proper occasion of it 
Um, and it's, it's just the best. It really is. And if, if you do do it and you do it for the first time, um, I'm really I'm envious, actually, because I know how much fun you're going to have. Um, you'll love it. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's just a brilliant weekend. Um, good. OK, well, let's move on from Le Mans. Yeah. Um, and for the next 20 minutes or so, uh, we're going to talk about the, the cars that we dreamed of when we were kids. This is a great topic suggested by a Drive Nation reader, Paul Mahi Rhodes. So thank you to you for suggesting this because it's just sort of heartland DN stuff. So we all had our dream cars as kids, um, no matter how old we were. I mean, that's true of everyone who, who loves cars, loves cars. So, but we want to talk about, Andrew, you and I, we're very fortunate that we actually get to go and drive these cars from time to time later in life. So yeah. we want to discuss the, the reality of one day going and driving these cars that you just so longed to, to even sit in when you were a kid. Um, I want to get started. I want to tell you about mine. Go on. And the, the cars, the, the manufacturer that I just adored more than any other was TVR. I was just <laughs> absolutely besotted as a kid. I, honestly, it was worrying levels of yeah. just... I, I, I thought they were just fantastic. I think I loved that they were British, but also that they were different. I thought they, their styling was sensational. I mean, something like a Cigaris or a Tuscan just looks unlike anything else on the road. Um, they had those wild sort of sculptural interiors. I loved that, as far as I could tell, they just whooped everything else's asses when it came to a drag race because they're so light and powerful. Yeah. So all that stuff just meant I was a TVR boy through and through. Do you think there was? Do you think that at some, some you know, when you were I don't know in your pram or whatever in your pushchair, a, a, a Griffith or something became rumbling <laughs> past you and it kind of. <clears throat> somehow infected your brain and, you know, and and every time you've seen that shape ever since you suddenly thought wow that's for me there wasn't an event presumably you can remember I can remember for instance and I'm not stealing your subject here but I can remember when I first saw a Caterham when I was a kid in fact it probably would have been a Lotus 7 and I can remember absolutely looking at mm. that and thinking oh my god um, <laughs> and, and Caterhams have been with me ever since they really have um, I'm quite you know, obsessive about them. Um, did you have a TVR moment that you, you, you can recall? The, the first time I remember seeing one, remember seeing one, was at, I must have been 10 or 11, at football training. Um, and I just, it, it pulled into the car park and I thought, oh my God, it's a TVR Camera. I couldn't believe it. I was sort of wobbly need. It's the most amazing thing. And I said to a moment later, I said to one of the guys, the lads I played football with, did you see that TVR? And he said, yeah, it's my dad's. And I just couldn't believe it, you know, just riddled with envy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the odd thing is, I, I don't remember seeing one before that, but I knew what it was. I knew precisely what it was. And I knew that I loved them even before then. So, I don't know, maybe I'd just seen pictures in magazines or whatever it was. I'd, I, can't, I can't place it at all. I just always loved them. Um, and it took me a long time to actually really get to drive one. But a few years ago, I just started at Evo. Um, and I went and borrowed a Cigaris from a, a dealer. Uh, the idea being just to sort of play out that fantasy, actually go and drive one of these cars that I, I'd loved for so long. Um, and it was, it was an interesting thing. I, I, I think I was surprised at how tiny the car looked in person, like a little toy car. Um, I think I was... Surprised, perhaps shouldn't have been, at how flimsy some of it felt. Um, and we, so I spent most of the day herring around the countryside in it, and then we went into central London and shot it. It was a really beautiful photo shoot, actually. Um, and I think what I, what stands out most um, is that in my head, these things were faster than anything else on the road. Um, but then when you actually drive one, I mean, they're quite quick, aren't they? But they don't, they don't frighten you with how much power and torque they have. They're, they're not, not that sort of machine. Some of them did. I mean, well, I mean, back in, I, mean, I can remember you know, when they put the mad Al Melling four and a half litre V8 in the Cerbera. That felt rapid. Mm. That felt like a properly rapid. I mean, the, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the pre Al Melling era cars, the Rover powered cars never did. Um, no. so you know the the Griffiths and the early Camaras and and that sort of thing but 
Um, for me, given the, the, the limitations of their handling, they, they always felt plenty quick enough. I didn't really... <laughs> going really fast in TVRs wasn't something which I, I necessarily felt that inclined to do. Um, yeah. I, I, never, I, I just never really connected with them in the same way that I would connect with, you know, with a Lotus or with, you know, with a Caterham, let alone a Porsche or anything like that. They were, to me, they were amazing looking cars with amazing performance. Um, and I love the, the entire, that iconoclastic approach, the sort of two fingers mm. to the rest of you. We're just doing this because we think it's cool. Uh, and I did like all of that. I really did. But they're always better on paper than in reality to me. <laughs> I, don't want, I, I don't want to rain in your parade here, but... I... No, well, I, I mean, I'll do it myself. The, the fact is, I spent a day, a couple of days with that Cigaris. I've since driven a Camera. I had driven a T350 before that. But I've, I haven't really longed to drive another TVR since, no. frankly. And that, I, that probably says it all, doesn't it? I, I adored these things as a kid, had a go in one, and sort of thought, oh, fine. So let's hope the new one is finally the, that TVR that delivers on the promise of everything that you as a kid wanted it to be. Well, that's five years old already, isn't it? <laughs> it's, yeah, anyway, maybe one day that'll, that'll emerge fully yeah, fledged. I hope so. I hope I so. We'll see. So go on, let's have yours. What were the, what were the cars, that, the specific cars that you, your poster cars as a kid? Okay, there were four. Okay. Okay. This is so. This is so cliched, and so I'm sorry, but you know, I'm a child of really. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a child of the '70s, but in terms of my sort of car awareness and really logging onto it, it's late '70s, early '80s. So it's the Lamborghini Countach, it was the Ferrari Boxster, it was the Porsche 911 Turbo, and it was the Aston Martin V8 Vantage, um, and um, those were the four. Um, and ever since, I've probably talked about this on one of the previous 48 podcasts. I had, you know, I was talking to you about defining moments um, and my catering moment. Well, actually, my supercar moment came when I must have been, it must have been about 1974, I suppose. So I would have been eight, I guess. And I was in London driving somewhere, well, just outside London, actually driving somewhere with my father. And we happened for some reason to go up the Egham Bypass. And there I saw Maranello Concessionaires, which is the privately owned company which used to import and distribute Ferraris into this country. Um, and my, I mean, you know, if, if my mouth could have hit the floor, it would have done. And so there's a little roundabout at the end and you turn around and he went and he went and parked in their visitor's car park and just let me out of the car. And I can remember walking around as this kid and seeing a Ferrari Berlinetta boxer and walking, I mean, I'm not really being able to believe what I was looking at, and walking around the back of it and seeing that it had six exhaust pipes. And I mean, honestly, I mean, it, it was one of the most astonishing things I had ever seen. This car was so fast, it needed it six, six exhaust, exhaust pipes. <laughs> Because of course, a, 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 a car speed and its exhaust pipe cars are directly proportional. And I, came, I had to sit down. I had sat down on the cold tarmac outside Marin Lake Concessionaires behind this boxer and just stared at its pipes. Um, and that was kind of what got Ferrari um, into my blood. Uh, that was my Ferrari moment. And so when Car Magazine, which is all I used to read back then, when they did those big epic group tests with the Porsche. And with the uh, the Lamborghini uh, and with the Aston Martin, I always wanted the Ferrari to win, um, but it didn't very often because the Lamborghini always won because it was faster and it was more dramatic. And I didn't mind um, the Aston Martin being there because a it would tend not to beat the Ferrari, and it was an Aston Martin. I was quite fond about those. And the Porsche, although it was very rapid by those, it wasn't as quick as the as the Lamborghini. For, so that was kind of out of it a bit. But I really resented the fact that Countach's used to beat boxers in group tests. That was that was personal <laughs> to me. And you know, and, and the silly thing is, the people who used to write this stuff are my friends now. You know, it's Mel Nichols yeah. and Steve Cropley and, and all the names we all know so well. Um, and you know, the whatever it was, the sort of twelve year old outraged me would want to go and you know bang on these people's desk and go you don't know how wrong you are how could you have made such a mess of this it's a ferrari it's got six exhaust pipes um <laughs> so so they were the cars for me um and yeah and so you're talking about what they were like when you drove them later on and, I, and i'm afraid 
to one extent or another, and even making allowances for the developments and the huge period of time that had elapsed, they were all slightly disappointing. Mm. So, but they can uh, only be, can't they? The, the way we hype these cars up in our own minds as kids, the effect they have on us, yeah. having to but, sit down but, on the tarmac, yeah. the reality can only be a slight disappointment can't it? If I, if I hadn't been hoiked away by my father, I'd still be there. I mean, it, would, it was just, but yeah, but I mean, if even slightly beyond that, I mean, okay, so I'll just take, I'll just be very brief about this, but so the Porsche, um, it didn't make a great noise. It had ridiculous amounts of turbo lag. It was quite tricky on the limit and it just didn't feel very fast. Um, so that was, and, but the other thing is that I just preferred unturbocharged 911s. I did, you know, you know, back then. So that was a contemporary of uh, the 204 horsepower SC and the 231 horsepower Carrera, the G Series Carrera, and they were just nicer cars. They were just better cars than turbo. So that's the Porsche. I mean, the Aston Martin was charming. It really was. It was lovely. Um, and if somebody said, "Do you want to go and drive?" Of course I will. I would. I, I'd, I'd cross the country to go drive one of those um, because it was so. It, to me, if I think of an Aston Martin, that's what I think. And you know, and, and, and you know, and if I were designing new Aston Martins today, that's what I'd have on the wall because that sort of that combination of tradition. But power and performance, um, and that slight edge of brutality, but the civility to—I mean, all those different things—to me are what makes an Aston Martin an Aston Martin. And I did like those, but you know, it's not a terribly good car. I mean, it's quite heavy. Um, it's not that fast. It's not that agile. It's a nice thing to waft about in. Um, but I'm not saying for a moment that it's like one of the icon cars as a thing to get in and drive. Um, should I do the Ferrari or the Lamborghini next? Um, I think I'll do the Ferrari. Um, boxes were strange because in their day, they had this reputation of being a slightly disappointing successor to the Daytona. And then once they stopped being sold, I think their, 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 their reputation sort of nosedived a bit. And although they were always regarded as beautiful, they were regarded as... Ferraris, which were a bit more about show than go, because they didn't have as much power as Ferrari. Said so that they had, um, they had a reputation for being a bit tricky on the limit, and you know they weren't proper drivers' cars. Um, and then I did drive one. Uh, I did a job for Classic and Sports Car, and one years ago, uh, which was a five twelve, so a carburetor five liter car. So the one in the middle. They started with four point fours, and they end up with injected cars, and then this was the one in the middle um, and I really liked it that's the one I really really liked and I think I liked it because although the, all the others had been hyped up and therefore they were a bit disappointing I was kind of prepared for the boxer to be a bit shit and it wasn't um, it's like driving a Testarossa today because that is I think a, a slightly unfairly maligned Ferrari you get and you think oh it's nothing like as bad as I thought it was good. so you have a positive feeling about it mm. and you know I got in the boxer and it made a lovely noise. I love that interior. I didn't find the handling particularly tricky. Um, and I just love the business of being in and around it. Unlike the Lamborghini. <laughs> and Harry Metcalf, if you're listening to this or you're watching this, you've heard me say this so many times. I can only apologise again. I know that there are coon dashes and there are coon dashes. And Harry Metcalf, who you'll probably all know through Harry's garages and uh, his time on Evo and everything else, uh, has a lovely late QV um Kuntash, which i haven't driven yet but i know a few people who have and everybody says it's wonderful and i'm sure that it is um because i think they made huge improvements to those cars the only car i've driven was a non-qv car i think it was an lp 5000 um and it was probably the car i drove was probably a bit of a dog but in our game the problem is you've only got your own experience to go on and you have to report as you find and the car that i drove i just couldn't understand what all the fuss was about it made a nice noise but it was mm. so cramped. It was so badly built. It was slow. It didn't feel fast at all to me. <laughs> um, and I can remember just thinking, this thing would just cheese me off so far. And I just, even more than ever, I didn't understand why those cars beat the boxers back in the 70s. So, yeah, I mean, it's not quite never meet your heroes because I've, I found all those, you know, I'm absolutely glad that I drove all those things, um, even if they did shatter an illusion or two. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting, you know. I, I I loved hearing you talk about the the effect that that um, car, that Ferrari, had on you when you were a young boy. Because it's just a reminder, isn't it, that a supercar can make a small boy or a small girl just 
get giddy with excitement just to mm-hmm. see the thing. And that's actually got to be at the heart of their appeal, even to adults, isn't it? Because they, they, they still speak to that child within you, don't they? They still mm-hmm. excite they, you. They, that they little do. kid inside you is just still driven wild by I it. Mean, th- I mean, that um, moment, you know... Okay, fine. I've been doing this game for more than long enough so that if I go as a road tester to Maranello or wherever and drive a new Ferrari, I can assess it objectively and say what I think about it. That's fine. Um, I can't do that with racing. And I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, I just, every time, there's, and I've said this before, every time there's a Formula 1 race, I just want a Ferrari to win it. And it's terrible because, you know, um, it, it's the least objective thing in the world. I, I'm just very, when it comes to racing, I'm just very tribal about it. I just love it when Ferrari does well. Um, and even when, you know, Michael was winning everything and Formula One was really boring as a result, um, I just wanted to win even more. Um, and I, yeah, and in 2023, um, when Ferrari returns to Le Mans, I'm going to want them to win. Um, because I, mean, there, there, there is, I don't know if there's something romantic about it or, 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 or quite what it is. But what I do know is that it all relates back to an eight-year-old boy sitting on the tarmac outside Marinella Concessionaires on the Egon Bypass. Um, all of it. That's great, isn't it? There you go. That's why supercar dealers, they should open their doors to young boys and young girls, shouldn't they, who, yeah. who are showing an interest in these cars because it can leave an imprint for life. And yes. who knows who they're going to go on to be, those, those young kids. Yes. So, um, sadly, Ferrari's God, investment in me, yeah, sadly, their investment in me has come to nothing because I've, I've never been remotely able to afford a Ferrari. Um, and I'm not sure, given what I do for a living, I'd have one even if I could. But um, <laughs> I do have that memory. And I probably have yeah. written stuff about Ferraris, which has, which has persuaded other people to go out and buy them. So, you know. Yeah, there is who that. Knows. Oh, there we go. Well, okay, so hang on. Are there some, uh, some, any cars that you loved as a kid that you've not had the chance to drive? There must have been a few. <laughs> you must have asked Maybe me not. these questions and some cars that i've not okay well racing cars yes but i don't think you really mean racing cars i mean they will be okay well, one one of the cars i loved as a kid was the aston martin db7 um, yeah i could arrange a go in one tomorrow i'm sure but I've, I've never driven one um i had models of uh a panos <laughs> that, and okay i've never driven a panos no, no, nor have I. I doubt I could arrange a go in one of those. But God. so uh, your dream car was a DB7 when you were a kid. I wrote the bloody road test on that car. Um, that's nothing quite like doing a podcast <laughs> with you to make me feel old. Um, <laughs> I would, if, if you do drive a DB7, for goodness sake, make sure it's a V12. Um, yeah, and ideally make sure it's a GT, which is one of the last ones. Um, okay. DB7 GT is actually because they they are more expensive than the normal ones, but they were better in every single way: um, chassis, brakes, engine. Gearbox. I mean, they, they, they went through the whole car. It wasn't just a sort of run-out special. Um, and mm. they're quite rare. And that's the DB7 to have. There you go. That's my thing on the DB7. But a DB9 is just 27 times better. Oh. <laughs> okay, so skip the 7 entirely and just go and have a 9. All right, fair enough. Yeah, well, I love those. I, I mean, I was, I was driving by the time the DB9 came out because I remember driving past one um, and just being so excited even at that point leaping out of my seat at seeing a db9 for the first time but yeah i just adored those when i was 17 or 18 um again i thought i've not driven one have i no i've not driven a db9 I need to go and put that right i just need to go spend some time driving some aston martin don't i yeah and i have That's thought you know your your original question which i couldn't answer about cars when i which i i, I lusted after when i was a kid which i had never yeah. driven um, and I was sitting here thinking it cannot be that I've driven everything and I've, and I've actually come across an entire category of car of road car that I've never driven so Go these on. were all the Italian road cars with or, or European road cars with big snorty American V8s in them so I'm talking about Iso Grifos and oh. <laughs> Monteverdis um, the obscure and stuff. even De Tomasos I've never yeah. driven a. I've never driven a Pantera. Um, mm. oh, that's and, interesting. Uh, you know, I, in fact, none of the. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I've even driven something like I don't know a Jensen Interceptor, which was the British for the thing with mm. a 6.3 liter Chrysler engine in it. Um, there was a thing called a Monteverdi Hai H A I, which if you go and look <laughs> it up, is an astonishing piece of kit to look at, um, and. 
I don't know how many they made. I mean, a very, very small number. Um, never got anywhere near one. So, and I, I don't know. I mean, I love the idea of cars that have, you know, beautiful Italian supercar looks, but just brutal American V8 power. Uh, to me, that kind of, that, mm. I kind of get that on appeal there. I don't yeah. know whether actually the reality of it translates very well, because they would have become a thing, wouldn't they? And, and they never did. Um, so... Um, I also have never forgiven De Tommaso for the bloke who turned up a good, at a Goodwood track day one. So a bloke turns up in his Pantera. This is in the late 80s, I suppose. And he gets out and he is in brand new overalls. Okay. And a, a, a man of his turns up in some service vehicle and he's instructed to clean the spark plugs before he gets out or change the spark plugs or whatever. And he, and he pulls on a brand new helmet. And I'm just you know, thinking, mate, you're going to have to be so fast. You are going to have to drive <laughs> this thing. Like, it's never been driven before. Otherwise, we're all just yeah. going to laugh at you. Um, and I was there in my Peugeot 205 GTI, and I blew the bloody doors off him. Oh, um, good work. <laughs> well, no, not, nothing to do with me. He was just a bloke who was just sort of, oh, look at me, look at me, look at my car. And he couldn't drive for toffee. Um, so I fear those sorts of cars might attract that sort of person. But that may be also mm. grossly maligning everybody who's ever bought a, 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 a Tomaso. I don't know. Um, so I'd like to drive one of those. There we go. So if anyone's got a, a Pantera, please get in touch yeah. with Andrew. Make his or childhood. an Iso Grifo. Or yeah. a Monteverdi. Make those Pai. dreams come true. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Um, or um, pretty much anything else, which yes, um, which is European in design but uh, American in power. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it sounds great, doesn't it? When you when you put it like that. Uh, okay, well, good. Thank you, uh, Paul, for suggesting that topic. That was good fun. Um, yeah, get in touch if you've had a, a sort of fun experience driving the car that you lusted after a, as a kid, whether you know good or bad. Let us know. We'd like to hear about it, but. We'll leave that one there. Well, there you go. We started this as the Drive Nation podcast, ended it as the Intercooler podcast. Um, so a, a, a poignant moment for us. Yeah. Um, and everyone, please stay tuned. There's much more to come. There really is. Over the next month or so, we're going to be telling you everything that we're up to. And I think you'll find it quite interesting. So please Thanks, do sir. stay tuned. Um, yeah. yeah, and leave a, leave a review for this podcast. That really does help subscribe wherever you get them okay and well we'll be back to talk to you all again next week look forward to it thank you planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 